0: In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle, and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield of the sword of the battle, Selah. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a dead sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence? When once you are angry, you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to deliver all, the oppressed of the earth, Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth.
1: Hallelujah. Thank you, sir. Uh, Today we're going to speak about Genesis 10 verses 1 through 5 as I said and this is the table of the nations and it's actually part 1 of three parts. This is the sons of Japheth. Now I want you to know last week if uh, you were here you know that it was a sermon I did almost off the top of my head with very few notes and uh, of course it was directed towards resurrection day. Um, for those of you that haven't been here before, my sermons are not like you will see in many churches that are kind of uplifting and they they, want to make life applications. I started with Genesis 1-1, and uh, we've been doing, I think we're on Sermon 26 today, to get up to Genesis 10. And they are, they stick right to the Bible. In other words, they are for you to understand why things happen in life and why things work the way they do from God's perspective. And so, uh, it's, it's more, I, I don't want to use the term a, um, uh, a college dissertation, but it's more like that than it is a sermon that you may think of, uh, generally. But it is the word of God and it has a purpose. And if you can't get through these more difficult passages, then you really can't understand what is going to come later. So I wanted to let you know that in advance. And before I actually get into the sermon itself, I have a couple things from this day in history. 15 April, is today and uh, does anybody know what happened 100 years ago today on 15 april it was the sinking of the titanic it happened at uh, 227 in the morning in the north atlantic it hit an iceberg and uh before the evening and it took that long for it to finally sink and 1517 people died and more than 700 people survived from that and this is the uh, freighter that uh or the uh, uh ocean liner that God couldn't sink, apparently, and it was on its maiden voyage. And after our sermon, before we take communion, I'm going to mention something that occurred on that night, and I would hope that you would uh, take it to heart. It is a wonderful lesson for all of us. One other thing that I'd like to bring up, and we there, busy day in history, I can tell you, 15 April, but one other thing is that in 1948, the Arabs were defeated in the first Jewish-Arab battle. And less than one month later, on 14 May of 1948, the State of Israel was uh, established. And since that time, they have been, uh, as a matter of fact, the day that they announced the establishment of Israel, every Muslim nation on earth proclaimed war against Israel and they were beaten. And then that happened again in 1967 during the Six-Day War, and it happened again in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. And God has sovereignly brought his people back into the land of Israel and he will defend them. If you know the book of Amos, the very last words of it says, they will never be uprooted again, says the Lord your God. Has his signature right down there. Um, And I'm gonna speak about that today a little bit in the table of nations. So keep that in perspective. Uh, I'll bring them up again towards the end of the sermon, and especially the part about the uh, Titanic as well, because these are things that happen to real human beings in human history. Getting into Genesis chapter 10 now, it is a lot like chapter five of the book of Genesis in one respect. It lists names and it lists people and it includes just a very little bit of other information beyond that. Just names and just a very little bit of information and for this reason it is often passed through very quickly and without a lot of study or thought. But it is something that has been placed in the Bible by God and it is therefore something that we should deem as important as he does. This chapter Chapter 10 is the last time that actually in human history, not just the Bible, but in human history, that all of the people of the world are listed together in a family type arrangement. Many of the people groups here that are mentioned will show up again in the Bible, particularly in future prophecy. And some of it is what I just read you from Ezekiel 38. So understanding who these people are and where they migrated to can help us to understand what is happening in human history, in prophecy, and in these future battles. Without this knowledge, the events of the world today seem unpredictable and they may seem frightening to us. But knowing who these people are and who they became allows us to see that God is in complete control of everything, including our present trying times and the future which we are rushing headlong into. So I hope that you will allow me to take just a couple of minutes and I would like to read you Martin Luther's thoughts on this chapter, chapter 10 of Genesis. Whenever I read these names, I think of the wretched state of the human race. Even though we have the most excellent gift of reason, we are nevertheless so overwhelmed by misfortunes that we are not ignorant not only of our own origin and the lineal descent of our ancestors, but even of God himself, our creator. Look into the historical accounts of all nations. If it were not for Moses alone, what would you know about the origin of man? And the question is, we would know nothing. Of this wretched state, that is our awful blindness, we are reminded by the passage before us, which gives us instruction about things that are unknown to the whole world. What do we have about the best part of the second world, meaning after the flood, besides words? Nothing to mention, not to mention the first one, meaning before the flood, which antedated the flood. The Greeks wanted to have the account of their activities preserved, the Romans likewise. But how insignificant this is in comparison with the earlier times, concerning which Moses has drawn up a list of names in this passage, not of deeds. In other words, it is the names which are important and which we need to cling to, and not the deeds of man, which will all just be forgotten in time. Hence, one must consider this chapter of Genesis in a mirror which, to which to discern what, human, what we human beings are, namely creatures so marred by sin that we have no knowledge of our own origin, not even of God himself, our creator, unless the word of God reveals these sparks of divine light to us from afar. Then what is more futile than boasting of one's wisdom, riches, power, and other things that pass away completely? Therefore, we have reason to regard the Holy Bible highly and to consider it a most precious treasure. This very chapter, even though it is considered full of dead words, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle and to the end of all things. From Adam, the promise concerning Christ is passed on to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to this Eber. Eber will be mentioned, I believe, next week, maybe the third week from now from whom the Hebrew nation received its name as the heir for whom the promise about the Christ was intended in preference to all other peoples of the whole world. This knowledge the Holy Scriptures reveal to us. Those who are without them, meaning the Bible, live in error, uncertainty, and boundless ungodliness, for they have no knowledge about who they are or whence they came. Martin Luther correctly came to the conclusion that this chapter contains the thread which started at creation and it will continue all the way until eternity and without this link that we're going to talk about there would be a tear in the fabric of our understanding about the things of God and the redemption of man because of this we need to spend some time in it and not just hurry through it and as I said we're going to spend three sermons on this particular chapter our text verse for today is Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 so he humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord includes passages which some people may find tedious or hard to understand, but they contain deep riches of wisdom and truth. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought from chapter 10 is the blessings and the curse. Verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. This is now the fourth set of generations or genealogies that the Bible has given us. So far we've seen the genealogy or the generations of the heavens and the earth. That was back in Genesis chapter 2. And then we saw the generations of Adam in Genesis chapter 5, where it listed Adam all the way down to Noah. And then in chapter 6, we saw the generations of Noah listing him and his sons. And now we've come to the generations of the sons of Noah. Noah means rest. That's what his name means. And he came safely to the other side of the flood and he received his rest. But from him, came three sons, all of which were named in anticipation of growth. Shem means name or fame, and it indicates that he would expand widely and become well-known. Ham means hut or passion, indicating anything but idleness. And Japheth means to enlarge or to extend. The world was going to move in many directions, and these three sons would be the fathers of all of that human movement. In this chapter, the world will be divided into 70 nation groups, and we're going to see that all the way through chapter 10. This then is the table of the nations. Before going any further, though, we need to go back and look at the blessings and the curse that were given by Noah to his sons. These are going to come into clarity of focus even in the world in which we live today. The patterns in the Bible and in the world that we live in From this one blessing and curse that Noah gave to his sons is so astonishing that when I was preparing these three sermons, I was actually trembling. It is actually that amazing what one man said that we are seeing in the world today. From this blessing and curse then, we are going to see these biblical patterns and we'll start with a few of them during the sermon today. Here is Noah's curse and his blessings as we read them in the week before Palm Sunday. Cursed be Canaan a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Because of what Noah's youngest son, Ham, did, Ham's youngest son was cursed. I explained this before. The reason why is because God had already blessed Ham. And the Bible says that how can one curse whom the Lord has not cursed? In other words, because Ham was blessed, he could not curse his son Ham for doing what he did to him. And so he turned around and he cursed Ham's youngest son, who was Canaan. After the mentioning of the curse of Canaan come the blessings of Shem and of Japheth. But Ham is not mentioned. Noah's sons are listed in the verse that we just read, though, chapter 1, as Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're listed that way in chapter 10, verse 1. They're listed in the book of Chronicles, and you'll see it elsewhere. Noah's blessing to his son Shem says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be a servant. Rather than directly blessing his son Shem, Noah says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And so this blessing is a spiritual blessing. And the line of Shem, since that blessing, has remained the main spiritual line of humanity ever since then, and it includes all of the world's monotheistic religions. It includes Christianity, Judaism and Islam. Regardless of the validity of the religion, the nature, the spiritual nature of the people has remained for 4,000 years. Ham is the second son and he received no blessing or curse directly. Only his son was cursed. But implied in the curse of Canaan is the entire family of Ham in general. The curse is that they would be a servant to their brothers And the line of Ham, as we're going to explore in greater detail next week, has truly been the servants to the people of the world. From the line of Ham have come the great technological and physical achievements of the earth. They are the great artisans and builders all around the earth. And when you see this next week, you're not going to believe this. And finally, Japheth is mentioned last. In his blessing, Noah said, may God enlarge Japheth. And this second sentence here is extremely important. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be a servant. Today we're going to see how accurately this was fulfilled in the line of Japheth, both in a literal and in a spiritual sense. From Japheth have come the great scientific, philosophical, and the scientific and philosophical and uh, mental achievements of humanity. In a previous Genesis sermon, we saw that in the book of Acts, The same order in which these three sons are mentioned in verse 1, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, is the same order in which salvation came to the people of the world after the time of Jesus' cross. The sons of Shem, who are represented by the people of Israel, received Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The sons of Ham came next in Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian eunuch received Jesus Christ, and that was, as I said, in Acts chapter 8. And then finally, in Acts chapter 10, we see Cornelius of the Italian regiment, which would have been of the sons of Japheth, and his family receiving Jesus Christ in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, as they're listed, is how they, salvation came to those people groups in the world. But what in what is an amazing pattern as well, each of these three specific groups came seeking Jesus Christ in the same order. There are certain groups of people in the Bible that are recorded in the gospels that came to seek Jesus. And here's how they were, the shepherds, and then the wise men, and then the Greeks. In Luke chapter two, the shepherds came to see Jesus, and they are from the line of Shem. The magi, or the wise men, came in Matthew chapter two, they came after the shepherds, and they are from the line of Ham, probably from Arabia. And finally, the Greeks, came to seek Jesus in John chapter 12, and they are from the line of Japheth. Once again, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then again, we can look and find another biblical pattern, which follows these three sons and their achievements in their descendants. It is reflected in the order of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew is obviously directed to the sons of Shem, the king of Israel, and they are Israel of the line of Shem. They're the Semites, the Jewish people in mark we see jesus depicted as the servant and the curse upon canaan and the line of ham would be that they would be servants and there is no doubt at all who luke is addressed to it's addressed to the greek mind who are the descendants of japheth so once again you see another pattern coming out of the gospel accounts from this one blessing of this one man many thousands of years earlier If you ever wondered how the gospel of Jesus Christ can affect people from every culture on earth and I've been all over the world and I have seen people all over the world that are Christians and the reason why is because this gospel message is directed to various people types of people all in these synoptic gospels and all of them are from these three sons of Noah. The gospel is a message of hope for the people of the world and it can connect with the thought process of any mind and if these points are not enough. There is yet one more beautiful picture of the universality of the message of Jesus and his work accomplished on the cross of Calvary. It is prominently displayed right in the crucifixion account, where each of these three branches of mankind, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, are mentioned as participating in his crucifixion. The sons of Shem were morally and they were spiritually responsible for his death. They sold him They tried him, they convicted him, and they handed him over. And as they did, they cried out, His blood be upon us and upon our children. Ham was there too. He was represented by Simon of Cyrene. If you remember, Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross. He's from Cyrene, which is in the north of Africa. He would have been a son of Ham. And when he carried the physical burden of the cross that led Jesus to the place of the skull where he would be crucified and died, he literally fulfilled the prophecy of Noah being a servant of the servant so you can see how amazing that is and then finally Japheth was there as well his sons were given the executive responsibility for what occurred when Pilate tried him and the Roman soldiers pierced him through his hands his feet and his side from what may have seemed like an innocuous sentence about three sons of Noah in an otherwise mundane-seeming chapter of the Bible, chapter 10, we can see patterns and parallels which show us the wonderful working of God and his love for all of the people of the world who seek him out. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is, and may God enlarge Japheth. Verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Misech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the Coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Despite being mentioned in this first verse as Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the lineage of Japheth is given first because he was the firstborn son of Noah, And maybe also because they are the people group that are geographically the furthest separated from the people of Israel. And therefore, they would have the least immediate effect on the people of Israel from a biblical perspective. In this account, there are 15 names that are mentioned. You have Japheth the son of Noah, and then you have seven of his sons and then seven of his grandsons. And some of these names are mentioned in Ezekiel 38, just as I read you earlier. I don't know if you remember the names as I was reading them, but they're right there as people who will come against Israel in the future. In the case of Ezekiel 38, and if you listen to the terminology of what I read, you know that this may actually occur in the very, very near future. Iran is of the sons of Japheth, and they are right there causing trouble right now. Moscow, which is represented by the son Misek, is aligned with Iran. If something happens to Iran, Moscow will get involved, just like we did when we got involved with Kuwait. We had an an agreement with them or a treaty, and Moscow has a treaty with Iran. If what happens that I think may be coming in the very near future, Moscow will have to get involved. And we are going to see other names in here as well of these people that are aligned against Israel even within the past year, some of them were, which were allies have now fallen away from them. The sons of Japheth became the coastland peoples of the Gentiles. And because of this, they would more easily branch out around the world, much easier than Noah's other sons. And from the coastlines, these would become the great sea-going adventurers of the world. Early on, the descendants of Japheth are known as the Aryans. If you remember the term from Adolf Hitler talking about the Aryans, This is the group, and they split into two main groups. One group settled in the direction of Europe, and the other settled in the direction of India. And these groups, which vary widely in skin tone and in languages, are still the same basic stock of people. What's really nifty about the divisions of Japheth, though, is that even apart from the Bible, we can trace back their lineage to Japheth. The Greeks claim an ancestor named Iapetos, a name which is very similar to the Hebrew Yapet. In India, they have their own flood account, which has many parallels to the biblical account. The great hero of their uh, tale is a guy named Satur Yata, and he had three sons. The, names of the, old, the name of the oldest is Iapeti, which again is very close to Yapet. The other two brothers are named Sharma and Sharma, Shem or Ham. If you pronounce it in Hebrew, it's Ham. So you can see how close they are. The story says that Harma, which would be Ham, was cursed by his father because he laughed at him when he got drunk. And if you remember that from the the story of Noah, it is the story of Noah in a nutshell. And if you don't see it in that way, then I don't know what kind of a nutshell you're trying to crack because it is very, very similar. There is no doubt that what we have in Genesis 10 is the word of God and that it is giving us these amazing details of real people and real matters concerning the beginnings of the post-flood world and that carry all the way on to our current time today. Because the sons of Japheth are the predominant people of India and of Europe, they are therefore the source of most American family groups as well. As you can see, the sons of Japheth have widely extended over the centuries, thus fulfilling the prophecy of his father upon him, which means to enlarge his name and the prophecy meant the same thing. But the enlargement is not just a physical enlargement. It is not just geographic in nature, in other words. It also includes enlargement in the scientific, the philosophical, the intellectual, and the spiritual disciplines. The descendants of Japheth have been at the forefront of understanding science. And it is rivaled only by the sons of Shem. History is com- it's replete with names like... Newton, Pasteur, Galileo, Galileo, Lavoisier, Kepler, Copernicus, Faraday. We could go on and we could go on and we could go on of the great scientific minds, all who came from the sons or from the line of Japheth. Even Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, they're from the line of Japheth. In the curiously intellectual realm, it's evident that most of the philosophical disciplines that have arisen over the years have come from the line of Japheth. And they continue to be dominated by this group of people even today. The Greeks in particular were the ones who brought in the early concepts of philosophy. We started out with the early classical Greek philosophers, which were people like Thales and Pythagoras, Xenophanes, Plato, and From there, it went into the later classical philosophers, people like um, Parmenides, Pythagoras, Socrates, Euclid, and even if you know the great, great philosophical mind, Aristotle, all came from Japheth. And then later came the Hellenistic philosophers and the Roman philosophers, and then the Western medieval philosophers and the early modern philosophers, and finally the modern philosophers. All of these great minds and all of these doctrines developed because of an ancient blessing of a man upon his son and there's one more very important point to make about the sons of Japheth the blessing on him did not stop with the idea of enlargement remember I said there was a verse I wanted you to pay attention to a second ago here's what he said to his son and may he dwell in the tents of Shem This is not speaking of literally dwelling in the tents of somebody. So it must be relevant to the first portion of the blessing upon Shem, which was a spiritual blessing. A guy named Arthur Coustance, a doctor from Toronto, noted that Japheth dwelling in Shem's tents means that he would come to share in the same spiritual blessing or the same spiritual inheritance as Shem. It is carrying on the message of Jesus Christ. If you understand that, if you understand what I just said about Shem carrying on the message of Jesus Christ, you can look at the prophecy of Noah and his sons and you can look at the Bible in an entirely new way. After the Jewish people rejected Jesus Christ, the spiritual banner of humanity moved from Shem to Japheth. And this isn't just idle speculation. The Bible speaks elsewhere of dwelling in another's tents in exactly the same manner. And as a matter of fact, I will read you a psalm as part of this sermon, at the end of the sermon, to show you that. In this group of people, the sons of Japheth, they have for 2,000 years held the spiritual primacy of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And in a marriage which has proven to meld the scientific and the philosophical doctrines of Japheth, they've been taken with the spiritual blessing upon Shem, and they have given us an ability to understand the Bible in another, in a completely new way, I should say. In other words, if you don't know the philosophy of people like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, then you have no way of grasping mentally doctrines such as the Trinity or the soul-body unity that the Bible speaks about. Uh, these type of doctrines and many others in the Bible only come into clarity of focus when you understand that God said, I am going to give you this blessing upon the people of Japheth, and I'm going to take the spiritual blessing of Shem while they're under punishment, and I'm going to merge the two together. And so we can see how this has benefited us as Christians understanding the nature of God. God makes no mistakes when he does things, and that includes this beautiful prophecy of Noah upon his sons. Those of you who may have listened to my sermon on Genesis 1:1 probably know exactly what I'm talking about as well. How can we understand the nature of God, what he is like in the Bible? But by understanding those concepts and melding them with the information given us by the line of Shem, we can see how the blessing upon him, dwelling in the tents of Shem, is literally fulfilled in this way. Dr. Kustans is exactly right about this conclusion. But to come to complete understanding about Shem or I'm sorry Japheth dwelling in Shem's tents we need to stand back even further and we need to look at how God both started and will complete his message to the world the Jewish people dwelling in the tents of somebody means that they encircle you and this is what the Bible without any doubt at all proclaims that the Jewish people will again be the focus of the world and the attention of all peoples of the world will be right on Shem at some point in the The future, and that will thus show the encircling effect of Shem around Japheth. So, what we want to do is we want to stand back and we want to look at the Bible from the widest angle possible. The line of the Messiah starts in Genesis. We have Adam, and then he has a son in his image, Seth. And from Seth, we have this line, which we've been following so far from 25 sermons, and we're going to continue all the way down through Abraham. It is one line. It gets to the Jewish people, and from the Jewish people, it gets into the tribe of Judah and David, and eventually it leads right to the Messiah. And where does that end? It starts in Genesis. It ends at the Gospel of John. After John comes the book of Acts, and the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts are focused primarily on one individual. Anybody know which individual that is? begins with a P, and it's not Paul. Peter. Chapters 1 through 12 of Acts are called by some people the Acts of Peter. And then from chapter 13 until the end of Acts, it focuses on another person. Another P person, and it's not Peter. It's Paul. So, right there at the middle, it, and before I go on, I'll tell you that Peter is called the apostle to the Jews. That's the title he's given twice in Scripture. Paul is called the Apostle to the Gentiles. At Acts chapter 13, the spiritual banner moves from Shem to Japheth. The book of Acts begins in a city. Does anybody know what city it begins in? Jerusalem. And it ends in Rome. It goes from the line of Shem to the line of Japheth. So here's what it says at the very last sentence of the book of Acts. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. After Acts, and it's ending in Rome, we have the next 13 epistles which are written by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and they are written to Gentile people. Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, they're all sons of Japheth. And this is how the Bible is being portrayed here. As a matter of fact, the first one is to who? It's to Romans, where the book of Acts ends. So you see what's happening. The banner is being transferred over here. But right after Paul's last letter, which is a teeny little letter called Philemon, the next book is called what? Hebrews. It is again directed to the sons of Shem. After Hebrews, we have the book of James, which is his sentence beginning, as Epistle says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And then after we have Uh, James we have 1 and 2 Peter again the apostle to the Jews and he says that his letters are directed to the pilgrims of the dispersion so we have Peter after Peter we have 1 2 and 3 John which is of the same nature and character as the book of John and then finally the uh, epistles in the New Testament end with the book of Jude Jude is almost a repetition if you've ever read Jude and 2 Peter it's just a condensed form of 2 Peter So we have these eight letters from Hebrews to Jude that are leading up as a transitional purpose of going into the book of Revelation. When you get to the book of Revelation, the first three chapters are dealing with one group of people. It's dealing with the church, the sons of Japheth. After that, from the fourth chapter on and actually the second verse of the fourth chapter, you come to the first verse of the fourth chapter is a picture of the rapture of the church being taken out. and from Four, two, all the way through chapter 19 when Christ returns with the church the entire focus is on the nation of Israel and this is what the Bible is proclaiming is that Shem starts things we carry the spiritual banner for a certain amount of time and then it goes back to Shem and in the chapter 20 of the book of Revelation it is dealing with the millennial reign of Christ 1,000 years of Christ reigning on the earth from Jerusalem in the midst of the Jewish people. And then you have the two final uh, chapters of Revelation, 21 and 22, and that is the final merging of God's people, both Jew and Gentile, the physical and the spiritual being merged. So in other words, when one stands back and looks at the overall picture, the sons of Japheth, meaning the church, truly do dwell in the tents of Shem. And they are encompassed on all sides by his spiritual tent. The Bible is the message of redemption that is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the greatest of all of the descendants of Shem. He is our Lord and Savior. And that brings us to our third and final thought today, which is the Japhethites near you. It might be a little easier if I was to give you a chart with all of this on there. I could say who these people are and where they went to, but I'm going to read you. The names, again, from Japheth and his sons and his grandsons and where they've gone into the world, and this will help you to piece together the world as it is today from a biblical perspective. Gomer is Germany, Crimea, Cambria, and the Celts. Ashkenaz is Germany, the Saxons, and Scandinavia. The son, Riphath is the Carpathians. And then Togarma, who is mentioned in Ezekiel 38, is the Turks and the Armenians, and if As I said a few minutes ago, one of these nations in the past year has turned its allegiance from Israel, and that is Turkey. They were actually so close within the past years that they used to hold joint exercises together, military exercises every year, and that stopped last year. They are now coming against the people of Israel. Then we have Magog, who is of the Georgians and the Scythians. Madai is the Medes, the Aryans, and the Indians of India. Javan is the Ionians the Greeks in the coastlands. Elisha is Hellas, Tarshish is Spain, Kitim is Cyprus, Dodanim is the area of the Black Sea and the Dardanelles. You have Tubal, which is Tobolsk, Misek, which is Moscow, Tiras, which is Thrace, and the Teutons. One thing to remember about these biblical names, and you're gonna see this through the Bible if you read your Bible, is there are names that end with I am. I've read a couple of them, Kitim and Dodanim. And I want you to understand what that is. I am in Hebrew is a plural. It's like us putting an S at the end of a name. So if you see an I am, it is not specifically a person's name, but the name of maybe a group or a clan or a family or a tribe. And they got their name from the individual who was in charge of it. So to help you understand that, when you see an I am at the end of a name, it's like reading something like all Garrett's are handsome people. You know that it's speaking of a clan and not an individual person but i don't want you to believe everything that you always read because not all garrets are handsome like i am okay so i want to take just a minute and i want to read something from a guy named ray steadman which will reiterate what i just read about who these people are and where they went but he does it in narrative form and it will really help you to get this into your head we learn here that japheth has seven sons but only two of them are traced for us in any detail the first was gomer From the word Gomer came the word Gaul or Gaelic. These are the people, interestingly enough, to whom the New Testament epistle, the Galatians, is written. The Galatians were Gauls. Most of us have a Gaelic or a Celtic ancestry. And the Gauls and the Celts were descendants of Gomer. They migrated to the north and settled in Spain, France, and in Britain. From these Gauls came the most of the early families of Western Europe and consequently the Americas as well. The oldest son of Gomer was Ashkenaz. He and his descendants first settled around the Black Sea and then moved into a land which is called Asenia, which later became known as the islands of Scandia, which we now know as Scandinavia. You can trace a direct link between Ashkenaz and Scandinavia. Another of the sons of Gomer was Riphoth. Although we do not know too much about Rifoth, we do know that he was located in Central Europe. And some scholars feel that the word Europe itself comes from the name Rifath. Another son is Togarma. This name is easily traced. He was the ancestor of the present-day Turks and Armenians who also mo- migrated northward into South Germany. Certain scholars have felt that the word Germany derives from the word Togarma. If you drop the first syllable, you have the root word of Germany, Garma. Two other sons of Japheth were Madai and Javan. These are easily recognizable in history. The Madai became the Medes of the famous Medes and Persian Empire. And I'll stop there and I'll tell you that if you read the book of Esther, you'll know who those people are. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll know who these people are. And even Isaiah, before they became a world figure, prophesied a guy named Cyrus would be the one to return his people back to the land of Israel. So the Medes and the Persians are mentioned throughout the Bible and they bear heavily on what's going on in the world today. So where was I? Javan is unquestionably the ancestor of the Greeks. His name, Javan, is still found in Greece in the form of Ionia. The Ionic Sea and Ionian Peninsula all derive from this word, Javan. His sons were Elisha, from which we get the the Greek word, Hellas. The Greeks are still called Hellenes, and Tarshish, whom most scholars associate with Spain. Kitim, which is the island of Cyprus, and Dodanim, who settled around the Black Sea and still finds a modern parallel in the word, the Dardanelles. These can all be traced by geographical titles and places of the names they left behind. So to close today's sermon, I have a couple more things to give you. I would like to read you the 120th Psalm. It mentions dwelling in the tents of Misech." Like I said, Misech was a son of Japheth and is the basis for the name Moscow thus representing all of Russia. The psalm also mentions Kadar, which was a son of Ishmael and therefore a son of Shem. For 2,000 years, the Jewish people were exiled all around the world and dwelt in the tents of foreigners. But now God has restored them to their homeland. And in his sovereign way, he has faithfully protected and returned his unfaithful people and he will continue to do so as the world comes against them. And before I read you this Psalm, I wanna tell you that one of the people that is here right now is the son of Shem and his family migrated from Russia, just as it says right here, migrated from Russia down into Israel. They had been for 2000 years all around the world proclaiming next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. And within our lifetime, his parents moved from Russia in what's called the Aliyah, down back into the land of Israel, just as God prophesied throughout the Bible. It is an amazing thing that one of us right here participated in that in his own lifetime. So let's remember to pray for Israel, both the people and the land, and also to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The 122nd Psalm, the sixth verse of it says, Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's the only commanded prayer about a place in the Bible. And we should take heed to it and pray for it. Because when the peace of Jerusalem returns, it will be when Jesus Christ returns to that land and sets up his kingdom of peace, which will last for a thousand years before we go off into eternity. Here's the 120th Psalm. In my distress, I cried to the Lord and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you or what shall be done to you, you false tongue, sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree? Woe is me that I dwell in Misek, which is Moscow, that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I got a poem I'd like to read you. I typed up for this particular section of the Bible. It's called The Line of Japheth. Noah had three sons who came with him on the ark, and they each had a wife to carry on humanity's life spark. The genealogy of these sons starts in chapter 10, verse one of the book. Shem is the first and then comes Ham and finally Japheth too. Don't just read this verse without taking a deeper look because these names hold immense and wonderful treasure for you. Shem's blessing was spiritual and spiritual he would be. Through his line came the very oracles of God and also through him came the Messiah for all the world to see when he came among us and on the earth he did trod. Ham received no blessing but his son received a curse. Yes, a servant of servants to his brethren he shall be. And the line of Ham fulfilled the words of this verse. Even to Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross to Calvary. Japheth was blessed with enlargement, like the spreading of a tree. And enlargement truly has been found in him. He spread out in science and also in philosophy. Greatness of the mind is the fruit of his tree's limb. And sons were born to Japheth after the flood. Seven sons he had who now fill all the land. Gomer, Magog, Madai, and Javan carry on Japheth's blood, as do Tubal, Mesech, and Tiras. Across the world they fanned. And Gomer's sons are noted in the Genesis account, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. Gomer says, they're mine. These sons add to Japheth's total head count. And even till today, we can identify them in Japheth's line. One other son of Japheth has children noted in this scroll. That son is Javan, who had four sons of his own. Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim are counted in the roll, and these sons spread out, their own seed having sown. From this line of Japheth, the coastland peoples came. Of the Gentiles, they were separated each into their land. Everyone according to his language and his family name. Everyone into their nations directed by the divine hand. Japheth's name has grown great, especially in one way. His line became the steward of the Messiah's name bearing his banner and waiting for the day when the sons of Shem will once again do the same. The time is coming full when Shem's tents will finally finish encompassing Japheth's bearing of the sword. And to Shem, the world's attention will be directed, you see, because to Shem will return Jesus, God's living word, everything in due time as, and as directed by the unseen hand. And when Jesus returns, his rest will be gloriously grand. Hallelujah and amen. I promised you that I would read something about the Titanic and uh, I would be negligent if I didn't read this today. When you hear what this man did from the Titanic, it is absolutely one of the most moving things I've ever heard. When the Titanic hit the iceberg, John Harper, this guy was on his way to America with his daughter. He was a widower and he had a daughter and he was on his way to America to become the new pastor of the church, which is where D.L. Moody preached. And He's heading there on the Titanic, and it says he successfully led his daughter to a lifeboat. Being a widower, he could have joined her, but he forsook his own rescue, choosing to provide the masses with one more chance to know Christ. Harper ran person to person, passionately telling others about Christ. As the waters began to submerge the unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats rebuffed by a certain man at the offer of salvation. Harper gave him his own life vest saying, you need this more than I do. Up until the last moment on the ship, Harper pled with people to give their lives to Jesus. The ship disappeared beneath the deep frigid waters, leaving hundreds floundering in its wake with no realistic chance for rescue. Harper struggled through hypothermia to swim to as many people as he could, still sharing the gospel. Harper evidently would lose his battle with hyperthermia, but not before giving many people one last glorious gospel witness. Four years after the tragedy, at a Titanic survivors meeting in Ontario, Canada, one survivor recounted his interaction with Harper in the middle of the icy waters of the Atlantic. He testified he was clinging to the ship debris When Harper swam up to him, twice challenging him with a biblical invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He rejected the offer once, yet given this second chance, with miles of water beneath his feet, man gave his life to Christ. Then as Harper succumbed to his watery grave, this new believer was rescued. And by a returning lifeboat. As he concluded his remarks at the Ontario's meeting of survivors, he simply stated, I am the last convert of John Harper. When the Titanic set sail, there were delineations of three classes of passengers. Yet immediately after the tragedy, the White Star Line in Liverpool, England, placed a board outside its office. With only two classes of passengers reading, Known to be Saved, and known to be lost the owners of the titanic had simply reaffirmed what john harper already knew if you've never accepted jesus christ as your lord and savior you may face a titanic of your own today you may be in a car in a car accident you may have your heart suddenly stop or whatever else the lord determines for the end of your life and you will go off into eternity And I would hope that before you do that, you would know that Jesus Christ loves you enough to have come here as a human being, God united with humanity, and he walked among us, and he gave his life as a substitution for our own. He took the punishment that we deserve on himself at the cross of Calvary. And by doing that, we can now have peace with God. And he does not make it hard. All he asks us to do is to put our trust in what Jesus Christ has done, fulfilling the law that we cannot fulfill. He says, if you will do that, if you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And as I said last week, only an idiot would call on a dead Lord. Tied up in calling on Jesus Christ is the fact that he is alive. He came back to life by the power of the resurrection of God. And he will live forevermore. And he promises that to anybody who has never called on him as Lord and Savior. And I know today's sermon, like the next two, are more studious and less life application. But the message of Jesus Christ comes through it as resoundingly as anything else. If you know who these people are, where they went, and what they have done in human history. So we're going to take communion. I hope you can stay for that. And then we'll close. Let me give a prayer real quickly here. Heavenly Father, thank you for men such as John Harper who understood the greatest man, Jesus Christ and who was willing to give his own life, his own vest, his own opportunity because of being a widower to climb into a lifeboat and instead gave his own life for these other people in emulation of what you did for all the world. And we thank you for that gift. We know that it is a gift and we can't pay for it. A gift isn't something that we can hand money for or we can hand anything else for. It is received by faith. And we thank you that by faith we can be restored to an infinitely holy and righteous God, and that would be the blessed, blessed hope of me today. If anybody here has never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would do that, that they would get on their knees and just ask him to take away their sin and their troubles and their trials and just grant that peace, that reconciliation with you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor that you are due in the exalted and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And I'll dismiss you. Yeberechecha Adonai Vi Shmercha. Ya er Adonai Panav Elicha Vikuneka. Y sa adonai panav Elicha Vey Lecha Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.